Hello, everyone, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, a.k.a. Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have Salim Ismail as my guest on the show. Salim is a successful angel investor and entrepreneur, and his last company, Angstro, was acquired by Google in August 2010. He has operated many early-stage companies and is a frequent speaker on internet technologies, private equity, and entrepreneurship. For the last two years, Salim has been the executive director of the Singularity University, and prior to that was a vice president at Yahoo and the head of Brickhouse. Hi, Salim, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. It is our pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. I know that you have a very busy schedule, so I would like to jump right into the interview with the following question. Sure. Salim, can you tell us a little more about yourself and your background, but especially why and how you got interested in becoming an entrepreneur in general and an angel investor in tech companies in particular? Okay. Uh, So I have been uh, building companies for the last 10 years or so. Uh, and I was I was in New York when 9-11 happened. And you realize when something like that happens that life is very short. Uh, and I decided, let's go, let's go play full out. Because carpe diem. Uh, and the I built two companies, uh, three companies in New York. Uh, one of them was called PubSub, which was uh, a big deal at the time. And then I moved out to the West Coast. Uh, because I thought that you couldn't, it was too hard to build a technology company in New York at the time. So I moved out here and joined uh, Yahoo, and I ran innovation there, and I was the head of Brickhouse, which was Yahoo's incubator, and was very fascinated by that. I think we've always used technology to change the world. Human beings have always done this. And so understanding how you can leverage technology to scale and make a big impact is something that's very important to me. So what happened was I was building out Brickhouse for Yahoo, and I had the enormous privilege there of looking across. Uh, my team and I analyzed three thousand ideas across the company, and our job was at any given point to be building out the top five. Right, so that was a ton of fun. Had a huge overview across the whole of the innovation uh, uh, portfolio at that company. Um, now Yahoo, unfortunately, was in uh, a difficult area, and when the Microsoft bid happened, it was it was time to go. Uh, I'd set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA. Uh, and I was working with the NASA collab here, and the NASA folks invited me to the founding conference of Singularity University in exactly almost three years ago now. I'd never heard of Ray. I'd never heard of Peter. Walked in completely blind. Uh, uh, the top of my head lifted off a bit with the talks that were going on and asked a few too many questions of how are they going to manage these teams and how are they going to manage all the ideas. And that was that. Very interesting, Salim. So... Uh in that sense, it's interesting to find out what is the motivation or the ultimate goal behind your work? Behind Singularity University? Or my work specifically? Uh, let's start with your own personal motivation behind joining the Singularity University team and deciding to push forward with that idea. So ultimately, a human being wants to make a contribution. The, the highest motivation, and we found this in psychological studies, is that the ability and opportunity to make a contribution is the most motivating thing that a human being can come across. And the opportunity to build out and run SU for the first, its initial stages, and the challenge 
of doing something that had never been tried to before, right? Uh, the synthesis of bringing together 80 of the top scientists in the world uh, across the fastest moving technologies, that opportunity was too attractive. Uh, plus the fact that the, the objective of SU in addressing grand challenges, I think, was very, very compelling to me. Um, the observation was made at our founding conference that if you look at some of our global challenges, we live in this accelerating disruptive world, right? But if you look at some of our global challenges, the financial crisis, uh, the spread of pandemics, aspects of climate change, these global challenges are rooted in accelerating factors and exponential factors. If you have an exponential problem, you can't address it with a linear solution. It's too expensive. So you need an exponential solution that's in scale, replicate easily, disseminate, uh, is easily copyable, operates at a local level, etc. And that got me very excited. And the opportunity to think about how you harvest the top accelerations across all these technologies and then apply those to some of these global challenges. Well, if you think, go back to the idea that you, the opportunity to make a contribution, you almost can't find a better opportunity than that. So that was it. So perhaps now is the time to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the potential or the actuality of exponential organizations. Do they exist? How do we create them? And so, yeah, so this is a recent thesis that I've been on, is, is we have a new breed of organization today, uh, a new type of organization that with a very small footprint is making a very global impact. Uh, examples would be TED or XPRIZE or Donors Choose SU is an example, right? Think of the impact that TED has had with a very small set of people or XPRIZE. Uh, our core team in the whole first year was five people. Uh, in the second year, we were seven people. I think we're eight or nine right now. But if you think about the reach and the impact we've had, uh, it's pretty incredible compared to that small size of people. So how are they doing this? How, what, is that new, how, what is that new paradigm of, of an organization look like? Community-driven, very purpose-oriented, very scalable, uh, using collaborative technologies almost to a fault uh, to really leverage each person. And the basic idea is in a typical, in an old-style organization, when you add one person, you get a linear addition, and maybe even less because you have mythical man-months and so on. In an exponential organization, when you add somebody, they add one-point-something times their value. And so you have an effective organization that's much bigger than the actual foot count. So in that case... In your experience, what has been the demand for an organization such as Singularity University, and what are the plans of, for growth? So we've been very fortunate. I think it's, we've clearly hit a zeitgeist of how people are thinking about addressing this type of problem. Right? We launched uh, in February '09 at TED, and we had 1,200 applicants from 70 countries that first year, uh, fighting over 40 slots. Um, it was completely beyond our expectations. We thought maybe we'd get two or three hundred applications. The twelve hundred was was overwhelming. Uh, we were waist deep in transcripts and reference letters and so on. Um, the second year we had sixteen hundred applicants from eighty five countries, and this year we had twenty two hundred applicants from I think one hundred and nine countries. Okay? So with that level of demand, uh, a clearly we've hit some way some zeitgeist on how people are thinking about it. But B, we could go 25 years just on that crop of applicants. So we've been thinking carefully about how to expand it, how to deal with that overwhelming uh, demand. And frankly, we don't have a good answer. Um, it's not easy to take this experience and replicate it elsewhere. Uh, we haven't bedded down our, our own model to really think about what does it look like elsewhere. And if we created a second uh, campus, for example, it would kind of always be a second cousin 
to what happens here at NASA. Um, the telepresence and e-learning don't really fully give the experiential uh, um, uh, understanding of what these technologies can do. So we've been thinking about how to spread it. And the, the best thing I've done is, uh, closest thing I've done is running these global contests around the world to push the processing out to the edges to find great students. And so um, it's a hard problem to solve. And it's a, it's a good one. We're looking at it carefully. Very interesting. So uh, how have your ideas about the interconnectedness of advanced technology and business evolved before and after you started Singularity University, or have they? They've, they've evolved a, a huge, uh, to a huge level. In, you know, when I was at Yahoo and, and building out startups, you're focusing really on Internet and mostly on consumer-based uh, technologies. You're really in, uh, you, at the time you're looking at internet and web-based stuff, and maybe a little mobile. Today, there's a lot of mobile involved, etc. But when you come to SU, it's not just internet and telecommunications. It's robotics. It's AI. It's nanotech. It's biotech. How could you use a nanotech, uh, uh, a breakthrough in nanotech, combined with robotics and AI to make a to make a massive change in health and wellness and medi- medicine? We found that disruptive breakthroughs always happen when you cross two very different and disparate fields, right? So the aim here at SU is basically to bring together the smartest and most ambitious and most accomplished young leaders in the world, teach them about the fastest growing pro- uh, technologies, and point them at the biggest problems. Something interesting will happen. It's, it's kind of a primordial ooze of disruptive innovation that we're creating here. So let me bring, it, uh, bring the conversation back a little bit to you then. Um, in your own words, who is Salim Ismail? Are you an entrepreneur, an angel investor, a technology enthusiast, a singularitarian? Uh, I am somebody that uh, uh, I grew up in a diplomatic family in India. Uh, my family was involved in the independence movement. Uh, there's always been a purpose around my career and my life, and I think there always will be. The uh, I'm actually not a singularitarian. I actually don't believe, uh, personally, I don't believe in the singularity. And you might find that surprising given I've been building out this organization. And I'm happy to explain that. Uh, the, the concept of a big singularity happening and everything changing at that point, I think, is a great framing of how to think about the problem. But I think in reality, we have little singularities all the time. The, in, a, in a crude context, the iPhone arriving was a singularity. Everything changed. SU being created and launching into the world was a singularity. For higher education will never be the same again after, after our presence, hopefully. Um, so there are many singularities. You waking up in the morning every day is a mini singularity. You couldn't predict it because uh, something could happen while you were asleep, and everything changes the minute that happens. So I think we have a continuum of these little events. Uh, it's fractal. I think you have a fractal continuum of these little mini-singularities that happen on an ongoing basis. Every little breakthrough, uh, whether it's in biotech or nanotech, is another mini-singularity in that little world. So, I, you know, we talk about the point at which machine... So my second uh, issue is we talk about the point at which machine intelligence overtakes human intelligence. First of all, we don't really understand intelligence. That's one issue. Uh, because it has so many dimensions. You have emotional intelligence, you have spiritual... Uh, thinking, you have maturity, etc. The second is what would constitute overtaking? Uh, machines are infinitely faster than us in most processing. 
my my memory is now in this device. We've already I've already merged with technology, right? For anybody with a smartphone, their memory is in this device, not in our heads anymore. We have a bunch of unemployed neurons, which we can now use for better purposes. And so I think we are constantly leveraging and scaling ourselves and and continuing that enablement of self-actualization with technology. The, the the idea of there being a specific point in time is something that I think it's I think it's a gradual shades of gray aspect as opposed to a big fixed point in time and space. So in, in your opinion then a singularity is unlikely to challenge the existence of the human race. Yes. I see. Very interesting. That's uh, one of those surprising moments that I get to have in at least once in, in every interview. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so let me. By the way, that's not to um, discount the fact or take away from a lot of the thinking in the space, right? I think there's the the thinking that Ray has done and many other people have done around this concept is is some of the most important thinking that's ever been done in the history of the world. I think that identification of these accelerating technologies and what their implications are is incredibly important. I just differ in terms of a single point in time as to a gradual continuum. I think of it as a boiling frog thing. I think we won't even notice when it happens because we'll be in it already. That's why that's why I think about it. So for you the singularity is a process rather than a single point in time. Exactly right. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. It's a process. Very interesting. And uh, is there a, a final outcome or direction, or is it non-deterministic in nature? I think, there, you know, you've heard my talk on metaphysics. I have a side hobby in, 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 in that area. And just for the viewers, I'm fascinated by the idea that we live in a world that's predicated on the concept of progress or improvement or evolution. And we understand very little about what are the steps or the process by which that evolution or growth takes place. And I've done a lot of thinking and reading and writing about that particular aspect. I think it yields insights and wisdom about other areas in life. Um, specifically around the, uh, the singularity, uh, I think that the, the end point of the, for humanity is a continuous process. And I think uh, um, uh, the futurist Stuart Brand has put it best. He said, look, we're, we, are, we are acting like we are already gods. We might as well start acting like it. And I think he said that in 1968. So I think it's a continuum. So let me put you on the spot here then and, and ask you, what would be some of the actions that we should undertake being gods? So I think the couple of things are, A, being responsible and accountable for what happens to the planet. Uh, I think we're being, we are very left-brained and technology has marched forward in a very crude way thus far. We need to be much more balanced and nuanced about how we use technology going forward. Uh, sustainable is, a, is a, I think, a bad word to use for it. I think, uh, um, I think a good word would be uh, stable. Uh, I think a good word would be, um, just generally, I think, in terms of how we use technology, we have to be a lot more careful about how we leverage these, especially as we're entering a world where technologies have exponential outcomes. Right? And we don't understand those outcomes, and the irresponsible deployment of some of these technologies will be very, very harmful to the planet, and perhaps life-threatening. Connecting your point with your um, talk on metaphysics, which, by the way, for our viewers, I have to say, was one of the most popular lectures here at Singularity University, oh, or, or conversations at Singularity University, I should call it. Um, 
Am I correct to understand that um, your mindset is that we have godlike ability to undertake and address problems and resolve them? Is that the sense that you are saying that we're godlike? That there's, in a sense that Peter Diamandis, for example, says that there's no problem that's big enough for us to not be able result, to resolve. Agree. Totally agree with that. That's why we're here. Right? We want to take these technologies and create a very, very big impact. Uh, and I think more importantly, we're certainly godlike enough to create the problems. We better be godlike enough to solve them. Right? So in that sense, the, we've caused uh, there's enormous amount of harm we're doing to the planet. We're overfishing. Uh, agriculture is using up too much land, et cetera, et cetera. We need to solve the population issue is a huge one. So we need to solve these. And this, we, the technology is arguably the only clear way in which civilization has ever progressed, right? Race says this all the time. Uh, it, I challenge anyone to pick another realm in which civilization has progressed in a huge way except via technology. So let's think about how we use technology to apply that to some of the problems and instead of using it to create problems inadvertently, let's use it to solve it. And we've started doing that. Uh, the, the ozone layer uh, was an example. And we, we got, well, the world got together and solved that problem, or at least it's on its way to being solved. Very interesting. But let me challenge you a little more on the negative uh, connections with religion sure. that some of our critics uh, often bring to light. Uh, for example, the singularity is near, uh, has a very biblical connotation or sounding to it. Yeah. Uh, one of the more notable critics, Jaron Lanier, for example, uh, refers to the singularity movement in general as the church of robotics. He says that the singularity is a religion for geeks. Right. Uh, what do you respond to, to those kinds of criticisms? Right. So uh, I've said already that I actually personally don't believe in the singularity. However, those types of comments are bullshit. Uh, and the reason I say that, and I'm using a very strong word, is that religions are based typically on an absolute truth that can't be ratified. And then you use repetition and ritual to embed that absolute truth into the minds of followers who submit to an authority figure. That's typically the view on religion. Um, there are there, there is validity, validity in it to this extent. There are a set of people who want to believe in something and technology is a pretty good thing to believe in. And so they latch onto it and they relate to it in that sense. And so to that extent, Jaron and some of the other folks are accurate. However, the general principle of leveraging technology and trying to understand where it's going, because it's going there anyway, is I think, uh, and, and painting this as a religion, I think is irresponsible. So let me push you a little further on that sure. point then. Uh, one of the reasons why this criticism is often brought forward is the fact that Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis often say that they believe they would live forever. Right. They believe we are at the edge of, of uh, accomplishing what Aubrey Gray calls uh, longevity escape velocity. Right. That is the moment when we will be able to extend our lives almost indefinitely. Right. How do you feel about that idea? Do you accept that idea? Actually, I think there's a lot more. Uh, I actually don't. I don't fully believe it. I think we will achieve it. I'm not sure we'll achieve it in the short timescales that people think. Uh, I've done a fair bit of thinking and research into neuroscience, and I think the brain is hugely more complicated than we believe. Right? We have a hundred billion neurons, each of which is a supercomputer that rewrites its own microcode on the fly. Uh, it's not a set of binary bits that we that flip on or off in some deterministic way. It's adapting on a real-time, constant basis. And, and the Deepak Chopra has, this, has asked this question, who is the I that is speaking? 
right? So I'm not really a person. I'm an ecosystem of a hundred billion or trillion cells operating in unison. So this this concept of who we are and what is life is kind of I find it a an irrelevant question almost because we. Uh, I, I think life is a force that just continues to roll for, roll forward, and you could call that God, you could call that evolution, you could call that the universe, you could call it whatever you want. In terms of the living forever part, um, the it's a very provocative statement to say we will live forever, right? The problem with challenging it is that Ray is often correct in what he's what he's said in the past. So when you when you look at the track record of of this extraordinary brain and the ability to predict forward what's happened uh, very much more often right than wrong, uh, it's worth considering. And what we think about is not the, the, that we should get there or that that's our objective and we want to live forever or whatever the case is, but the fact that it's likely to happen and we need to consider the implications. And so at, at SU specifically, we think carefully about what are the implications if that does happen. And it looks pretty likely that it is 3D organ printing. Uh, we've, we figured out how to reverse the telomeres and reverse the aging process. We found jellyfish that are essentially immortal. Um, so there is there is precedence for this as we figure out technology that that solve this. It's just because we're so used to the cycle of life and death, we are as a civilization. It's hard to believe that that could end. I think Ray is one of those people that is able to transcend the traditional limitations that most people have in their thought processes and can project forward. And so what are the societal implications if one class of people is living for, forget forever, but just for a very, very long time? Uh, so I think we need to consider the implications. I personally think it's going to take longer than than that. I, and so uh, we, but the implications of it and the societal and the problems that come out of the overpopulation, healthcare for the elderly, etc., are things that we need to take very seriously. And one of the unique aspects about SU, which is one of the things that gets me very excited, is we actually think about these problems long before they happen. And it's unique in history that as uh, an institution is able to take this kind of action and think about this and actually have a shot at addressing them in a unique way that we've never had before in history. And if I dig even a little deeper, just sure. last step down, perhaps, into the metaphysic and ethical backbone of Selim Ismail. Yeah. Are you personally religious? No. I'm, I would say I'm a fundamentalist agnostic. Fundamentalist agnostic. So what that means is I don't know, and I challenge somebody else who think they know. The problem I have with religion is most people say they believe in something, but they don't relate to their belief as a belief. They relate to their belief system as truth. And that causes a problem. right? So saying something like Muhammad is the last prophet or Christ was the son of God is an absolute belief structure uh, and what, what I've called an absolute truth that's not ratifiable, uh, and then relating to it as if it was true. And, and I, don't, I don't mind what people think as long as they relate to it as a belief and they can have all the belief systems as they want. Um, but, but when you start operating out of truth, that causes division. When you have division, you have conflict. And when I've looked at it and I, I had the fortune of, of uh, both my grandmothers knowing uh, Gandhi and Nehru very well, uh, my father spent time playing in his lap, etc. There's a very profound truth that comes around when you realize that essentially, when I was growing up, my father said, look, here are the Ten Commandments. They're essentially across all the same religions. I don't care what you practice. Just follow those. And when you can get to the absolute, uh, the, the core truths of how you should operate, then the religion itself becomes irrelevant. I think of each religion as a path up a mountain, 
the aim is not which path you're taking, is are you going to the top? And if you're on one path and taking a certain route, you can't tell somebody on the other side of the mountain, this is the right thing to do, avoid this bush, go over here. They're on a different path. And so it's perfectly okay if people pick a path and relate to it, just understand there are other paths. And the core is not to follow your path, the core is to get up to the top of the mountain. Just to torture the metaphor fully. I really appreciate your frankness, Salim. So let us move beyond that issue now. Um, And let me ask you this. Um, Now that you've moved kind of across the other side of the aisle uh, and being an angel investment investor in tech companies, do you find that there is some kind of a tension between the entrepreneur in you and the angel investor in you? So I'm a different type of an angel investor. I've always been what I call an operating angel. I don't invest passively in companies. I invest very actively. And usually I invest and then I take on the CEO role and build it out, right? Uh, SU is a nonprofit, so I haven't put money into it, but I've put three years full-time into it, which is a pretty considerable investment uh, at an important time in my life. And so, but when I look at it, this is probably the most important investment I could ever make, right? I'm very proud and thrilled with what we've accomplished here collectively with Ray and Peter and Rob and, and Neil and everybody else, Dan Barry, et cetera, all of the staff, and the the incredible work that's gone on. The team has been essentially the same for three years, which is saying quite something. Um, so I think of myself as really an entrepreneur, and sometime, sometimes I'll put money into a company, and it's often my own money. I, I, I have a particular gift in getting excited about other people's ideas. And so uh, uh, I'm not tied to my own. Uh, I like to help a great idea wherever I can. And uh, would you perhaps care to give us a few tips about uh, being entrepreneurs and or investors in a world of uh, exponential technologies and disruptive change? Uh, a couple of tips. The first is um, it's if, you, if there's two aspects of entrepreneurship that I think are important. The first is do you want to make money or do you want to make a major change? If you want to make a major change, then you should be an entrepreneur. Find a set of new technologies that are making a breakthrough impact that serve a huge purpose and go address those, that, that problem space whether it's some of the grand challenges that we talked about or others. Um, if you want to make money, then you should think closer in. It's very hard to make money at the edges of science. The, the markets aren't proven, the business models aren't there, the technologies aren't fully solidified. Uh, it would be very easy, it would be much easier as an entrepreneur to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of uh, new devices that could try and measure consciousness. Right? I'm fascinated by that. Is that the thing that I think will make a billion dollars? No, not right away. Uh, if I wanted to make a billion dollars, I'd go create a new type of social mobile ad network, etc. The problem is I find that boring. So if you want to make money, pick something that's close to where we are and not too far pushing out the edges because it's very easy to be too early. And, and Ray has suffered from this and many thinkers have suffered from being too early to the marketplace. Uh, my old business partner at PubSub has, was early to the marketplace five times in a row, and he, you know, was one of the originators of Lotus Notes, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just very hard. The uh, if you want to make money, stay close to the edges. If you want to make a big impact, go further out. That's brilliant and succinct and and very, I think, profound. Thank you for that advice. Um, it's it's it's. I take it as how much it cost. <laughs> Okay, excellent. Uh, now, another interesting detail of your biography is the fact that you're Canadian. 
Yes. Um, um, I don't know. Would you like to say something about uh, our fellow Canadians and their presence here in Silicon Valley in the tech industry in general or Singularity University? Sure. So uh, just for uh, the, the viewers, I'm, I grew up in India. Uh, I, I did my schooling in university in Canada. I went to Waterloo, my degrees in theoretical physics. I spent 10 years in Europe uh, restructuring large European companies, uh, which is why I'm bold. Um, uh, and I've been here in the U.S. for the last 10, 12 years, seven years in New York, five years here on the West Coast. Um, I think Canada is a very fascinating country, um, and I'll give two or three reasons why. The first is, although culturally it's very American, from a philosophical and attitude and policy point of view, it's exactly halfway between the UK and in Europe and, and the US. And so it has a very nice balance of public-private healthcare, uh, education system, uh, tax base that's somewhat sensible. And as one of the newer countries in the world, it has a more advanced set of bureaucracy and easier to navigate bureaucracy than other countries. I'll use France as a terrible example or, or some of the... It, um, um, by the way, I lived in France for three years, so I have some things to say about the French. In fact, the, the CEO of one of the uh, large French insurance companies, I asked him why the French are a little bit difficult, and he said, the French will say that works in practice, but will it work in theory? And they really operate on that basis, so there's a particular paradigm that comes out. And I'm a huge fan of French wine and food, etc. So, uh, But I think Canadians have that huge... Uh, uh, a gift of being culturally and from a policy point of view halfway between the Euro Europe and the, and, and the U.S. The negative is that um, they are risk-averse. A Canadian venture capital is actually an oxymoron. I've never seen one that actually ventures capital. They, are, they operate more like banks. So if you're trying to build a business or really be an entrepreneur, then Canada, the U.S., and specifically the West Coast is a much better place to be than anywhere else in the world. Until recently. Now I see we're seeing hotbeds of innovation and entrepreneurship spring up all over the world, Brazil, Israel, uh, parts of Europe, etc. Salim, our interview is unfortunately coming to an end. So let me finish it with the last question, which is, do you have a single message that you would like our listeners and viewers to take away from this interview with you today? Sure. Uh, it comes, it relates to Singularity University. Uh, and our, our, how we address grand challenges. And um, if we don't address some of our global issues with technology, then we often end up in war. Right? I think there are 70 armed conflicts around the world right now today fighting over clean water, and yet we're surrounded by it. Um, so uh, grand challenges lead to armed conflicts and war, and war is a very expensive way of progressing humanity. A humankind has used technology many times in the past to create massive new uh, capabilities and prosperity. with The ROI is fantastic, and it's a much better route to go. So I'm passionate about the idea of using technology to address grand challenges. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Salim. Thanks for having me. Thank you.